AL2 listeners, you can find audio from this series and other series alongside study guides and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions following this podcast, you can email feedback at l2today.com. The first reading this morning is from 1 Peter 3, 13-15. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. The second reading is from Romans 1, 16 through 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteousness shall live by faith. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. I'd like to start this morning by, by asking you, how do you explain why discussions about our faith oftentimes don't go as we assume? Or better, why, how do you explain when others are able to engage people in ways that defy all those assumptions? What I'm trying to get you to think about is the fact that there are many things at work when we attempt to describe what we believe or even discuss what we believe that are a little bit beyond what most of us are contemplating or thinking about, especially when those opportunities come up. For example, why can one person engage a conversation with a person that's even outright hostile towards Christianity and it turns out to be a productive conversation and, and then another person even if, even if he's engaging someone that's close to him, a family member, close, longtime friend, it, it almost always ends in an argument. What's the difference? What is it that causes that and brings about those differences? Are we to assume that discussions about our deeply held beliefs are challenging merely due to the nature of the topic? Or is there something at work in you know, in, in those issues. Or even worse, are we just to assume that the cultural pushback against Christianity has reached a point that we should just give up altogether? In other words, if we have any desire of, you know, civility in our relationships with, with, other, with other people, it'd just be best if we kept our mouth shut. You see, these are the issues that I think every one of us face. We've all been pushed into places and probably not the same consistently throughout our lives. So, so we'll have some places where we can talk about our faith, typically around other Christians where we know it's safe. The discussions are kind of easy and natural. And then other situations where we almost don't dare admit that we believe something. It's almost as if we know that it's almost like a spark that's going to ignite a flame that's going to result in an explosion. 
And this is what I think we need to begin to think about. Um, research is actually beginning to indicate that it's not what we're talking about that's the problem. It's how we're talking about it. When we learn how to talk about it, it can make all the difference in the world. And the reason is that the vast majority of people, in spite of all the shift that you're seeing and reading about in the culture towards Christianity or whatever, the large majority of people in the United States remain somewhat open to discussions about Christianity. But the simple fact is, the majority of our own experience is that they don't go well. They never have, and it doesn't seem like the future promises any improvement. In this series, we hope to be able to kind of refute some of the misnomers, some of the things that we've actually, I think, developed in our, our thinking that are more perception than reality. Um, about a month ago, I preached a single sermon in the holiday season. It was titled, Talking About the Gospel. And we were completely shocked by the response we got. From people here at L2, from people that watch online, from people that are listening in other places to the podcast. And over and over again, we heard the same things. That oftentimes, talking about our faith can get really kind of technical. Some of you said... I'll never know my Bible the way Russ knows his Bible. I'll never study philosophy and cultural shifts the way that Russ is studying those things, but I can do that. What he talked about that day, I can do that. And so, having assessed that response, we really felt that this was a, a very good time to actually go much deeper into some of what I covered in that series. That's why you heard the same verses that I used in that sermon for 1 Peter 3. Um, but what we're going to try to do is to go deeper into the principles and the practices that make a difference when we talk about our faith. And so we've titled, we've titled this series Offering a Counter-Narrative because we're going to actually consider some practical instruction that comes from the Scripture and just kind of best practices by some Christians that are doing quite well today and that is intended to help you be able to talk about it in a way that's credible and compelling. It might not be convincing, you can't control that, but you can do everything you can to make sure that those occasions are at least the best they can be. And so hopefully that we're going to be able to lay this out over the next week. Now that the format for this series is relatively simple. We're going to take two weeks to to kind of lay a foundation that we're going to be able to build upon. And then after those two weeks, we're going to take 10 weeks in the book of Proverbs, and we're just going to deal with topics that, that have a lot to do with the narratives that you're engaging with other people. You see, every one of us has a belief narrative, and, but those narratives vary from person to person when it comes to having a problem with the temper, when it comes to sex, when it comes to marriage, when it comes to parenting. You see, we all kind of have different ideas and different opinions. And so what we want to be able to do is to show you a consistent way to identify the narrative that that person is holding to and be able to speak to that narrative from Scripture in a way that's actually pretty credible and compelling. And so this morning I want to start by, in this particular sermon, by showing that there's a significant necessity of a counter-narrative. We have to learn how to think in those categories differently than we did 
for the past several decades. For decades, the church taught us that we could just kind of have almost a track. Some of us used to carry them. And it was just a kind of a wooden structure that we used to present ideas and concepts to people. That doesn't work. It makes them angry. But learning how, learning what a counter-narrative is and how to offer it, I think is a good first step. So we're going to look at the necessity of a counter-narrative this morning, and we're also going to look how to discover the counter, the narrative that you need to counter, both in yourself as well as other people. In other words, there has to be a narrative that you understand that you are able to position yourself to counter, or there's nothing there. It's vapor. And so I want to start by considering this first text this, that shows us the necessity of a counter-narrative. And at the very onset, I, I want to kind of peel back some of the naivety that maybe many of us, maybe most of us, I don't know, might possess here. Let's admit from the very beginning that any time you talk about faith and beliefs that you deeply hold, it's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. It is for me. After all the years that I've spent counseling and in ministry, whenever it goes to a place that's that personal, it's difficult. And I think the primary reason is that you have to be willing to be vulnerable. It's not safe. To engage these types of discussions, there's an element of courage that you have to possess or you'll never be able to do it at all. Now, the second thing that I would point out just by way of introduction here is that Today's culture has made discussions about Christianity in particular difficult. Now, to some degree, I think as a church, not just L2, but I mean Jesus' church in general, we, we have to own the fact that the reason that the difficulty of those discussions is so present in today's culture is because of the misconception about biblical Christianity that are prevailing in, in, in Denver and all over the United States in particular. And so, you're going to have to be willing to be vulnerable. There's going to have to be an element of courage that you begin to focus on and recognize because it's not safe. These types of discussions are never safe. They aren't for me. And secondly, you're going to have to recognize that most of the time, you're going to have to encounter misconceptions about Christianity, both in yourself as well as other people in the culture. Now, these verses from... Peter's first epistle, give us insight into these types of discussions that we're considering this morning because they show us the way to engage them as well as what we should be attempting to accomplish. And so the, the first thing I want to point out is that Peter tells us pretty clearly how to engage these types of discussions. And in verses 14 to 16, Peter gives several characteristics of the way that we should engage the manner of our engagement in these types of discussions that should be without fear, meaning the idea of what he, the terms that he used there, it, it meant that we shouldn't allow ourselves to get so upset that we become anxious, that we, we become troubled in the idea of an anxiety that produces confusion. The clarity of our thought kind of dissipates. Secondly, we see here that we're to be really intentional about making sure that that our understanding and love for what Jesus has done and is doing should actually have a very special place in our heart. He says that. You need to make sure 
that there's a place in your heart that your highest affections are preserved for him because he's the one that in the end of the day is the keeper of your soul. The third thing that he tells us is that we are also always to be prepared. People are going to ask you. Now, I'm going to qualify that just a little bit. I don't have people ask me all the time. Say, Russ, why don't you tell me whatever. They don't ask. That's not the way it comes. But it oftentimes opens up like, why is it you think that way? Why is it that you're so different? And those are the occasions. So he's saying something specifically about these, these types of discussions. They have a way of opening up to you, but you have to know what you're looking for. Now, the fourth thing that he tells us in verses 14 to 16 is that we must do our best to avoid arguing and conflict. And he says it by simply saying that the, these types of engagement should be characterized by gentleness and respect. That's not gentleness and respect coming to you. That's gentleness and respect coming out of you. Now, the fifth and the final thing, he said, you shouldn't be a hypocrite. You should maintain a clear conscience that allows you some clarity, perfect no, but a, an ability to say, okay, I've lived my life according to the claims that I'm presenting. So the person that I'm discussing these things with isn't able to say, well, you don't do that. That's not the way you live. That's not the way you think. And so there's a consistency there. And so how to engage is fairly clear, and Peter gives us that instruction. But the most important part of this is not the how to engage, but the objective of the engagement. We see that in verse 15. Now, the word that he uses for defense here is, is, means more than just defending yourself. It, it meant, it, it was more than a mere refutation of a person that is suspicious or even, um, you know, hostile towards Christianity because it went beyond that and that it establishes the need to, act, to, to give an answer that is positioned as a counter-narrative to what the person believes. In other words, you can't prep yourself in advance for this. There's things that you can do. There's disciplines that you can incorporate into your life that are going to make you better than if you hadn't. But the, the type of defense that he's talking about here is one that is positioned and offered to them in light of what they believe. In other words, there's a belief narrative in the person that you're talking to that has to be answered, that has to be spoken to. And so this is kind of the essence of it. This is what he's really getting at. And to do that, you're going to have to aspire to not only understanding the gospel yourself from your own perspective, but you're going to have to listen. You're going to have to be patient. You're going to have to be humble enough. Um, I would say the number one key that I would tell you at this point, don't try to do too much. I think oftentimes when we engage these discussions and some of it comes from our anxiousness or the vulnerability, we, we try to swing for the fence. We try to accomplish everything in one single meeting and you can't. You have to be more patient. You have to be willing perhaps to enter into the same type of discussion, the same vulnerability, the same lack of safety over and over again before you're going to make any progress. And so there's something here that is really... I think emerges that's really, really helpful. Understanding how to engage these discussions about our beliefs and knowing that the objective of these engagements, engagements should be understanding the narrative of the other person, what they believe, and 
offering a counter-narrative that demonstrates the superiority of Christianity to what they are believing at the present time about that specific issue. But as helpful as those things are, it still begs the question, how do we know what that is? How do we know, how do we do that? How do you get to the point that you actually can understand the belief narrative in this other person? And that brings me to my second point today. How do you discover the narrative that you need to counter? Now, I think it should be fairly obvious to all of us that with some people it's going to be easier than others. In other words, the development of your relationship and your, the proximity of your life to other people probably has already give you, given you insight into the belief narrative of this person that you're around so often. Conversely, the other people that you do not have close relationship to, those are going to be challenging. Now, this begs the question, is it possible that there's an approach that works almost all the time? Is it possible that we can actually start to think and apply ourselves to a specific approach that would expose that belief narrative to us in a consistent and accurate way? Now, I believe there is. I believe there is, and I hope to be able to show it to you this week and in the weeks to come. Um, I think it's anchored in what we worship. Now, the reason I say that is that we're, I'm going to show it to you from Scripture here in just a moment, but our culture itself seems to be awakening to these realities. In other words, non-Christian culture in the United States right now is recognizing a deeply-seated propensity that we have towards worship. Now, this is where we go to Paul's instruction, and we, we begin to see some interesting things that he began to say about this. Now, before we go there, I want to show you that there's evidence that the culture is shifting, but their awareness in non-Christian culture is beginning to cause them to pay attention to this idea of worship as well. Listen to these, these words from David Foster Wallace, who who was thought to be an atheist before his death, his suicide, actually, in 2008. But he wrote these words in a, that have a very strange relationship or connection and similarity to what Paul wrote over 2,000 years before David Foster Wallace even lived. This is what he said. He said, In the day-to-day -day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or a spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah, be it, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan Mother Goddess or the Four Noble Truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age has started showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. On one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified in, as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. 
The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, uh, being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, that has an eerie parallel to what Paul wrote. And it's coming from an atheistic writer that is considered to be one of the greatest literary geniuses of our generation. And he discovered this insight. And so I hope to be able to show you there is a way that you can get in and understand the belief narratives of other people without fighting. There's a way that you can explain biblical Christianity in a way that is engaging to the life that they are already living. It's not imposing something foreign on them in the least. Now, what I hope to show you is that what Paul wrote here has this crazy connection to it, to what Wallace wrote, but it doesn't jump off the page to you, not at all. In the verses that you heard from Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17, Paul's basically saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the very power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So Paul is essentially launching into this first chapter of the book, the letter that he wrote to Rome, and he is saying several things. The verses actually lead out several different aspects of Paul's view of the gospel. First, it shows that he was incredibly confident in it. In other words, he wasn't fearful of being humiliated. He believed that that there was a message essentially in the gospel that couldn't be transcended in the culture. He would not, in the end of the day, be embarrassed because of what he came to believe. Secondly, we see that he had an unbelievable understanding of the power that was at work in the gospel, something that many of us lack. Many of us have no confidence because we really don't see the source of the power. Paul simply believed that it was the power of God for salvation to everyone who believed. We also see that he, how he understood the essence of the gospel when he said, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed. And then we also see the method of how the gospel is communicated because it's not communicated mainly in miracles and signs and wonders. It's for faith. It's from faith for faith, meaning the gospel is communicated by us. It's communicated in our interactions, our lives, rubbing up against the lives of other people. And so we see a lot about what Paul understood about the gospel. And again, that information is very helpful, but it, it still doesn't explain this key to discovering our own belief narratives or the beliefs of others. And that's where I think the connection in verse 18 comes into play. Verse 18 starts when it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. Now, this is the second time he used the word for, which is basically because. The first one, he said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's this power, because he said it in it, the righteousness of God is being revealed. And here he says the wrath of God is being revealed. In other words, there is some unbelievable relationship between his confidence in what the gospel would do, the power that it is, is, it is actually utilized, utilizing, but it has a connection to the wrath of God being revealed. 
And this is where I begin, I think you begin to peel back and understand how to do this. Now, we don't have the time to look at all the verses between chapter 1, verse 18, and 2, verse 1, but chapter 2, verse 1. But I, I want to give you a simple two-point outline of everything he says. You can go home and read all the verses later and check to make sure I'm not just making this up. Um, but the first part of the outline, he's basically saying what Wallace said. He said, everyone is worshiping something. You've never met, nor have you ever been, a, a person who doesn't worship. Now, this is one of the reasons that there's kind of a, I kind of have a fetish about trying to show you how you need to strip from your language the idea that you refer to non-Christians as non-believers because it's offensive. It's offensive. I've talked to them oftentimes and their response to that is basically saying, I can't believe that you're willing to, to refer to me as someone who doesn't believe something merely because I don't believe what you believe. And it's, that's increasingly the opinion and how it lands in the minds of people. Now, Wallace was the one that said, there's no such thing as not worshiping. Now, what Paul is going to lay out here is that, that we all are engaged in it, but we need, to we need to avoid the conclusion that only these evil, wicked people are the ones that worship the wrong stuff. Now, the reason that I would point this out is that in chapter 2, verse 1, when he comes out of this text, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, you practice the very same thing. See, most of the time when we read through Romans 1, we're reading it as a narrative about other people instead of a narrative about ourselves that we understand in such a way that allows us to better understand them. And so there's something at work here that really starts with the simple presupposition that everyone is worshiping something. You're worshiping something. I'm worshiping something. We always have and we always will. And so there's something at work there that you can easily enter into to consider and to contemplate. Now, he goes on, still in this first point, he, he basically says there's a reason that we worship something because we all know there's a God. Since the creation, God has made it, he, he's been very careful to make sure that every single generation knows there's a God. He's manifesting his invisible attributes through what has been made so that it's inexcusable when we take our worship and put it on the wrong thing. And so everybody is worshiping something. That is the basic presupposition that this starts with. And the second part to this really simple outline is that worshiping the wrong thing will end badly. In other words, you, you need to be very, very careful what you put your worship on. You shouldn't be indiscriminate about allowing those things to slip into those parts of your heart. And again, it's what Wallace said. Wallace said the same thing. Worshiping the wrong thing will eat you alive. And so he got that part of it right, but the part that Wallace missed is what to worship. Because he simply delineated between things in the world, whether it was power or money or sex or whatever, and he said, if you eat that, if, if you eat that, well, I don't know where that came from. I'm sorry. So there's no babies crying. I can't even explain that one. So if, come on, if you worship that, it, it will destroy you. 
But then he goes, he said, it doesn't matter whether it's Jesus. It doesn't matter whether it's Allah. It doesn't matter whether it's Wicca, the Wiccan mother. It doesn't matter. In other words, in his mind, it was simple enough to delineate between things and some type of spirituality. But what Paul is saying here is way different. He's saying essentially the same thing. You worship the wrong thing, and it's not going to end well for you. But he takes it way beyond Wallace's perception of it. Now, as Paul begins to explain it from verse 18 following, he, he basically saying that as each of us live our lives and experience the creation, every single aspect of it reveals the character of God to us. And it's like there's a barcode that isn't obvious. You know, we know what barcodes are. We see them on the back of everything. I can see them on the back of these monitors and computers and things up here. But it's almost as if God said, everything that you've ever seen, smelled, tasted, or touched, or heard, it told you that I was there. And see, that's an explanation for this insatiable quest that we've got to find something that's worthy of giving our lives to. But what Paul is saying here that links to the power of God is that it's, it, it, it's so prevalent that, that you can actually presuppose it. You can see it in, written in every single one of our lives. Now, anything... Because he says it's so obvious, he said in verse 20, he said it's inexcusable if you put it on the wrong thing. In other words, there is something that's culpable in this exchange. Now, the refusal to worship the wrong things, or the refusal to give worship to God and thereby set it on the wrong things, again, isn't limited in this passage to only things that are religious. Because, you see, we, we know people all the time that worship their marriage. The church is culpable, I think, in many ways to idolizing marriage. I know people that, I, I, I know people that have kept their, their chasteness sexually, and that has become a form of worship to them. They came years ago. I had a, a small Bible study, and there was a woman that that she actually came to the point that we were studying the attributes of God. She broke down in tears one night, and she began to tell, tell the group, she said, I, I just realized that I worshipped my virginity. She said that it was, it was bigger to me than God. It defined my whole identity. And she said, I'm realizing it became kind of an anti-God thing to me. And so it, this isn't just religious stuff. This is worshipping your children. Worshipping your job, worshipping an academic pursuit, or worshipping some construction of a company, that, the building of a company or an organization or a culture that you're going to be able to say, that would be truly amazing. All of those can be idols, not simply the religious stuff. Now, what he's getting at here is that our refusal to recognize God and to worship Him ignites a process. Now, listen closely to this. It starts a process that becomes progressively intensive in our, our pursuit. Thinking to be wise in verse 22 and 23, we became foolish. And we become enchanted with things that hold us and captivate us. Then our desires become inflamed to the point of becoming lust. Now the term epithumos, the term they use for lust here, uh, that Paul uses, it meant a passion that you no longer can control. 
is something that controls you. We all know what it's like, right? We all know what happens when something we desire crosses a line. Something we desire that we can control, it crosses a line, and we still want it, but it controls us. That's what it happens. And so this passion, this, this, this pursuit that gets ignited is shown to go deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole. It gets us into a place that we never imagined ourselves being. And then in verse 26, it says that God cares enough to tell you, knock yourself out. Think about it. If, if he just kind of bumped your life along, you would never discover what is revealed in these verses. You would never discover that you gave yourself to a taskmaster that's only objective was to destroy you. It took from you. you. You gave of yourself sincerely. You laid it like on an altar, your life and the things that you did for it, the things that you gave to it, the things that you withheld yourself from in order to focus and do that. You would never have discovered those. But in these verses, God says he gave them over. And in that giving over, they find out what's written here. This is the reason, Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this. Here's the key to it. Here's how you discover the narrative that you must counter for those people that you love with gentleness and respect. It is writ large in their life. Now, what he's going into, the, he, he continues after this because at some point God says, Go after it. Go ahead. Go all in and see what it does to you. As we realize that we can never do, it can never do what we thought it could do, then we pervert it. In other words, instead of admitting, I was duped. I cannot believe how stupid I was. We can't do that. The darkness in, is at work in our thinking is so great that then we try to twist it and distort it. We try to make it into something so that it could prove itself to be the Savior that we believed it could be. Now, he uses homosexuality as an example here, but it's not the only thing he's pointing to. He's pointing to homosexuality. He says, okay, here's how the insistence that this will make me happy. Here's where it goes. But we know from the context that it's an example of a whole bunch of things. Because as we twist and distort those things to try to prop them up and to make sure that they don't break our hearts, it puts us in places that we end up doing things that we never dreamt were possible. And so this list that comes out of this, it, it, that he finishes this text with, he said, it ends in evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. You know the key one that kind of jumps off? Disobedience to parents. What he's describing is the fact that your children disobey you because of idolatry is already at work. They've already learned how to put their hearts on things that make them disregard you as their parents. 
This is profound. The depth to which he goes and the practical aspect to which he comes out. And he's showing you the way to discover the, the narrative, the belief narrative that's written on the heart of every human being. And we've all done the same thing. I'll even go further. We're all doing it right now. That might beg a question. Well, as Christians, can we still be idolizing things? What's the answer to that? What's the answer to that? Do any of you really believe that all of your idolatry has been entirely eradicated? Mine has not. Mine has not. It's inflamed all the time. I have to maintain almost a constant watch or it will overtake me by surprise. You see, this is what caused John Owen to say, you know, when sin seems to be the most quiet is when it's the least quiet and it's preparing a surprise attack. You will never be free from this. Not in this world. But there's something at work in a Christian. And we're going to look into that over the next couple of weeks. But my point today is that this is remarkable. See, this is what caused C.S. Lewis to write, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from him because it's not out there. This is what Paul is saying. Anything that you pursue to provide peace and happiness is going to break your heart but him. He can't give it to you in any other way because it's not out there. It will eat you alive. And so in short, this pattern, as I've said, is writ large in every single life as there's no such thing as not worshiping. All of us are worshiping. If you can discern what a person worships, marriage, children, vocational, academic pursuits, sex, power, possessions, you will also discover the belief narrative that supports and justifies his or her pursuit. It's there. And it's easy to see. Much easier than you think. In essence, I think, as I said earlier, this should cause all of us to be a little bit concerned about how we've diminished the gravity of our worship. Because you see, we've diminished it. Modernity and a secular culture that's moving, they said those are just your values. You've got facts and values, and your values are your personal stuff. Don't worry about them. You know, so we all hold them personally, and it's almost like we can indiscriminately give them to anything. Paul is saying here, you cannot. You cannot. Because if you give them to the wrong thing, will eat you alive. You will not recover. Now next week, we're going to consider the gospel. And I hope you'll come. Because I want to show you what needs to be held deeply in your heart about how God has saved us, is saving us now, and will save us. Because if you don't understand that, you'll never be able to unpack a counter-narrative. That has to be clarified in all of our minds. Because if we try to offer a counter-narrative without a clear understanding of the gospel, it will never work. There's no power in it at all. All right.
Let me take a couple questions and we'll be done today. What are signs of destruction from worshiping the wrong thing? Let me make it specific. If you're a young woman and you're beginning to give yourself to the pursuit of a relationship with a man, and for some reason God shows you that the pursuit of this relationship is so inconsistent with the woman that you want to be, the things that he wants you to do, the things that he won't allow you to do, then it becomes like a fly, or a, a fly, a moth to a flame. That's twice I've done that. Um, you, you find yourself almost in a tractor beam. And your friends are pointing it out, but your perception has become so altered that it's, it's almost like they're lying to you. The pull is so great that it's altered your own understanding of the experience. They can see it. They can come to you over and over and over and point out how destructive this relationship is becoming in your life, but you can't break it off. You're held in an enchantment that's like a spell. More than any movie that you've seen where some witch could put the eye of a newt in a smoking glass and have you drink it, you are blind. And it's destroying and dismantling your life one piece of, at a time. But you can't tell. We've all known that. We've all known people like that. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like. It looked in the late 80s, it looked like me, blinded by my passion for success. It looked my, like me being proud of the fact that I could work you all under the table. The way I rose, the way I disciplined my schedule, the things that I was committed to, the things that I would read, the things I would study, I was going to make it. And it was destroying my life. It was pulling apart pieces of my marriage. It was pulling them off with like red hot tongs. It was destroying my children. And I couldn't see. If you cannot see several of these cycles and patterns in your life, there's something wrong with your perception or, or your honesty because they're there. They're there with you just like they are with me. And as I said already, I'm still prone to them. Now, my, my pursuits now are more sanitized, but they're nonetheless false. So there's something to that. It's a very good question. Next one. With regard to offering the gospel with gentleness, isn't the gospel itself offensive? It, it is, but that's a half of the truth. You, you, I, I think you could get at this. I heard a marvelous discussion by a uh, Tim Keller in 2008 I was at a conference in Manhattan and you, you can take 1 Corinthians 2 that, that said that the, the natural man does not accept the gospel because to him it's foolishness and he cannot accept that because it's, it's, uh, 
it, it, it's spiritually appraised. When I was in seminary, a very dear professor of mine, George Zimmick, he, he, he used to use this illustration. He says, it's like the gospel is broadcast on FM frequency and the natural man only has an AM antenna. That sealed the deal for me. And for the next 13 years, I was a jackass because I was just doing God's work God's way. I was just letting the results up to God. And I, I didn't see it until I was in Africa. I didn't see the way things had to be contextualized or they missed people altogether. In one sense, I had too high a view of Scripture. I thought if I just threw it out there and explained what it was, then everybody would get it. It wasn't until I was in the state penitentiary. I wasn't in the penitentiary. I used to work in the penitentiary. Um, when I was there, I could see it too. And I began to understand what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9 when he said, I've become all things to all people. If they're weak, I've become weak. If they're, if they're under law, it's, I'm going to be like I'm under the law. I'm not going to eat ham. If they're not under the law, it's going to be like I'm not under the law. He said, I've become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some of them. And so there's a sense in which we have to say the gospel is going to not register in certain situations. We need to do all that we can. Now, Keller went from 1 Corinthians 2 to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 11. He says, knowing the fear of the Lord, therefore we persuade men. Same term. We persuade them. We're trying everything that we can to make it make sense, to register with them, to see how, and to teach them how to do that. And so you're right. There's a, there's a sense in which we need to be able to say this is going to be offensive. And the primary reason it's offensive is because God's telling you, you can't save yourself. People hate that. You can't do this. I don't care how good you are. You'll never be able to do this without me. And that, that pisses people off. But there's a part of it that's winsome. There's a part of it that's depicted in a Savior that stands before a city that was about to kill him. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have received you. As a hen does her chicks, but you will not. With tears in his eyes. So don't lose one side for the sake of the other side. Learn how to present it in a way because until you really try, you don't know if it's you that's offensive or the gospel until you really try. All right, last question. Once we recognize what our friends are worshiping, how do we expose that and help them deal with it? Great question. Come back next week. <laughs> That's what this whole thing is about. The next 10 weeks, you're going to be blown away. I, I, I am more excited about this series than I have been about a lot of things for a long time. This is going to be a game changer for you. I promise. I promise. Let's pray. Father, we would ask that these would be moments in which the things that we've talked about probably fall a little bit hard on some of our hearts. Because quite honestly, we see ourselves better than we should. We, are, we actually see ourselves a lot like the Pharisees did. I thank you that I am not like him. And whoever him is, we all know in our mind. It's somebody that we invariably see ourselves as superior to. It's somebody that we can hardly imagine them ever being saved, which is just a betrayal of the fact that we don't understand what grace is and what it took to save us. Father, what I just beg you for 
is that over the next several weeks, you would open our eyes to what the Scripture says about the way to present the Gospels, to the, to the belief narrative in the people of our lives. Not to a generic culture, not to some PhD students, but just to the human beings, the men and the women, the boys and the girls, the rich and the poor, the tall and the short, the fat and the skinny, the highly educated and the simple. And all of that breath that's represented by the people that sit in this room. Redeem it. That it might have the gospel in it now. I hope that you would teach us those things. And so as we finish this service, help us to worship in a way that our hearts would be full and your face would be pleased. Help us to worship in a way that we know we've met with the God of heaven. We commit these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can find audio of the series and other series alongside study questions and sermon notes at l2today.com. If you have any questions, send an email to feedback at l2today.com. 